Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and I'm here today with my brother, Christian Lewis. Today, we're talking to one of America's great songwriters and recording artists, Charles Bissell of The Wrens. You can learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Now let's talk songwriting, recording, and procrastination with one of America's leaders in all three categories, Charles Bissell of The Wrens. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and I'm here with my brother, Christian Lewis, so it's a brother-brother podcast, and today we are sitting down with Charles Bissell of The Wrens, one of the finest <laughs> songwriters in working today, and uh, one of our, from one of our favorite, absolute favorite bands. So, really happy to be here with you, Charles. I was just going to go with deputized other brother. That's yeah, <laughs> uh, that's good, yeah. This is uh, Charles Eldest Bissell brother. Lewis. Um, <laughs> Missing all this I have kind of a funny story to, to start off this podcast, which is that uh, I last uh, or first met Charles 11 years ago when I was doing an article for Paste Magazine. We sat down at Finelli uh, in Soho, had lunch, um, discussed the history of the Wrens. I took notes, and I never wrote the article <laughs> because a few days later... Oh, well, we'll get to that later. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, basically, so um, you know, there's been an intervening 11 years, and not only did I not write the article, but the album that I was talking to you about that day has <laughs> uh, yet to be released. So uh, welcome to the Procrastination Hour with Wyndham Lewis and Charles Bissell. What did you say? That was 2005? Six. 2006. So I think I said, I think I said when you were here before that, uh, that even though I must have been saying, like, oh, it's going to be this, that, and the other thing, Initial recording wasn't even begun for four more years. <laughs> like, so. That's dedication. Well, the, first, yeah. the first draft of the article is still in the works, too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. so. yeah, and you know what's funny is I'm going to a party at Paste Magazine next week. Are you really? <laughs> Maybe I'll turn it in. <laughs> so, what, so what's been going on? I mean, I, you know, I, you. I've, been, I've been sleeping a lot, but what else has been going on for the last 11 years? Uh... Thank you for asking. When I graduated from high school, gone to college, <laughs> yeah. uh, At least you have stopped working. Yeah, exactly. I've got nothing. <laughs> I sat in that room over there, and when I met you, you were single, I believe. Yeah, two thousand six. I wasn't single. You married. Our tenth anniversary is is uh, today's is tomorrow. Congratulations! Thank you. As I once wrote on Facebook to Charles, he became the Husker Du of fatherhood. I believe you had three <laughs> children in the calendar year. Is that yes. right? That's, <laughs> that's what it feels like. <laughs> but yeah, it's three kids, about two years apart each, more or less. And where are the rest of the guys? Uh, Greg is back down in the South Jersey we grew up in. And Jerry lives outside of Philadelphia. He's been there for a long time. And then, and Kevin just, Kevin's in New Jersey, but has relocated uh, to Asia. He's working in Singapore for a year. So he'll be back like next 
After the holidays, I guess. I can does, that, does that make recording difficult, <laughs> having people in several different continents? I mean, it would, but I mean, I, I know we've talked about it a bit, but like, it's not like we're, we're not all sitting in a room or something recording to begin with. But yeah, if you were like a normal like band where you like put together songs and get in the basement and, and even do it yourself, set up mics and all that, uh, yeah, that would make it a little... <laughs> I think we uh, you you often you know hear that the bands in, in LA in particular or increasingly in New York are just you know spread so over such sort of large geographies. Right. Um, I think you've really you've really raised the bar on that. Uh, I mean, like uh, the east side of LA versus Santa yeah, Monica, exactly. yeah, <laughs> that that you know sort of untra- untrackable um, bit of land. Um, <laughs> it's tough to get practices together I'm across gonna... twelve time zones. And, exactly. Yeah. But that sort of brings us back to the yeah, story of the Wrens, which is. You know, this is a band that has, uh, you know, every release they've put out has been phenomenal, but, uh, you know, life has sort of intervened in, in, in progress. Uh, the timeline <laughs> tends to get uh, pr- protracted because, um, you know, we're talking about not just people with day jobs, but people with very significant professional careers that are, are also in a band. Yeah, it's, it's all that, and... And that's almost like, that's also the, almost the answer on how we've lasted this long. Because it's, <clears throat> you know, I think, again, I think we talked about it a bit, but it's not, you know, how, how we made like the first two records was like tr- regular bands, songs together, recorded them, overdubbed stuff, and it was, you know, all four of us were living together, I think, at that point. You know, and then by the Meadowlands, it was just, it was three of us living together, which is still like hilarious. Like I left... I lived with Kevin until I was forty-five or something. Oh, wow. like that's like that's like being in your dorm room for like another twenty years or something. Like, <laughs> was it no twenty-four? Uh, was he married at the time or? I was like, look, I sleep in the middle, and that's yeah. no. He was he got <laughs> married after I did. I'm already losing track. You would think I would. Yes, he got married. A year or two after that. I remember from my from my uh, now famous uh, Pace magazine <laughs> notes um, that by by the time we had had that discussion, Jerry lived in lived in Philly. Um, you said he had uh, retrofitted his touring van for four children. Is it? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so it was a he went from touring van to minivan. Yeah. And um, you were bringing him in to to play drums. On nights and weekends when he could when he could swing it, and yeah, and that's how the <laughs> it's just so funny that I said that as if it was ongoing. Then <laughs> this is what we're doing now, and then like three or four years later, that's what we started doing. <laughs> so, do you think in a way that things sort of, I mean, you you mentioned a second ago sort of the the way that this has contributed in some respects to the sustainability that putting life first in a lot of respects has allowed you to keep the band together, that it's never felt like a, a, a zero-sum sort of decision necessarily, or um, that it had to be this absolute sort of choice between continuing to do music and, and um, you know, and, and evolving and, and, you know, growing up. Um, yeah. So, so is, I mean, has it been important, I, I guess, to, to sort of make sure that life comes first, or um, um, was that a conscious decision? N- uh, no. It... It's also one of these things, and maybe it's part of the procrastinator slash perfectiony mindset, where it's like, next thing you know, like, 
the, the story you're telling involves like lunches in 2006 like maybe like <laughs> that you don't plan on it being that long it's a combination of things like it's I just mean that in I think I mean that it, it enables like the, the longevity of the band in that um, because it isn't by the time we get to the Meadowlands we weren't like we tracked that as a band and then I overdub stuff for like the next three and a half years so by that point Jerry was fully into like a career he had kids he was living you know even at that point he was coming up to rehearse the songs and track but they were all put together as a band <clears throat> and then by the time we got to this record I'm married with 1.5 children <laughs> at that point you know and uh, and so it's Greg and so it's Jerry <clears throat> so it was, and then Kevin shortly thereafter, and those, by that point, so it's, it's summer of 2010, those three guys all had very real careers, and I was already like the at-home dad, and sort of winding up like musician-y sort of stuff, and his teaching and stuff, and, um, and then that album, that album, <laughs> I say it like it happened then, it, I just was working on it just before you pulled up, <laughs> this album, forthcoming, uh, yeah, the forthcoming, forth that album, <laughs> is, uh, it wasn't put together full band-wise, like my songs are just, like I did them in there, and then eventually overdubbed Jerry on the drums, so it's much less a band effort, with a huge qualifier that now Kevin has stepped up and is writing and recording his own thing, so it's, so this weirdly, two solo records, sort of, even more so than it was before, whatever. But it, because of that, in, in a way, because the other three guys aren't sitting here in the kitchen drumming their fingers on the table while I'm, like, trying a different bass part, or, you know what I mean? That is put as enabled to launch the band, too, like, because we aren't, because it is, like, real life. They're going about their lives, and then, like, we're kind of winding up. It's like, hey, the record's sort of finishing. Are we going to... Play and there's a lot of questions to be answered, but yeah. So in, in some respects, you think it. Uh, you're, are, you, are you saying that it's it's um, it's beneficial maybe to the chemistry and the, the relationships? I mean. Um... Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Just like because there's no sort of what you're saying. Like it doesn't have to be an all or nothing. It's not a hard line in the sand because you're not like hey we're we're either doing this or we aren't, as if it was as if we were still like twenty five. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're all living in the house or hitting the band for a month at a time or something. We didn't even do that on the Meadowlands, like. So, yeah, if you're gonna have a like a looser like, kind of average commitment to, the the requirements of being a band. By that by that point, I sort of mean either me sitting here every day recording, which is like the other half of the story is. In telling the story, it, it sort of makes it sound like, hey, life comes first, and when I can, I come down and I do a guitar part. But kind of the sadder, more pathetic thing is that I worked on this record, like, every day for six years. Like, until two in the morning. Like, every goddamn motherfucking day. No shit, I am not fucking around. So he said, no. He said, he said, I found he's welcome, right? Encouraged? Encouraged, <laughs> okay. Like, which is sort of a measure of, like, I don't know, Perfectionism? Perfectionism, but also, like, the talent versus work ratio skews towards work with me. Like, I, I disagree. Well, it's super flattering, but I've thought about this a lot. Kevin, <laughs> Kevin's talented. Like, when he, if he picks up a guitar, it sounds like a cool song. If he goes to sing, he sounds great. 
You know, the first take sounds great. Tenth take sounds greater. You know, or whatever. But, and I have my moments. I know what my strengths are, but I'm way more hit or miss. I don't think I have... And I taught guitar for ten years, like hundreds of students. And over time, I kind of decided that, like, the talent's either, like, really complicated, like, way more complicated, that's usually accomplishment. You know, all my students that did well practiced more, and they practiced more, and it made progress faster because they loved music more and listened to it since they were little kids differently. And they're, So that when you would explain something, you're like, hey, here's how this Nirvana song or whatever at the time. They already sort of knew what the bass is doing because they knew what the function... You know, they already knew that sound. They knew what its role was, so you could zip right along and and a year later they're doing great and you're like, oh, he's so talented. And like, no, she's just worked hard because and made more progress. Right. So I apply that to me even more so. Like, everything seems to be work and struggle. And It, it sounds like, I mean, that, that's a, that in itself, though, has got to be a, a real sort of process of, of self-discovery, though, right? I mean, learning your strength, learning how you work. Um <laughs> Learning, uh, as you say, you know, to to truly sort of understand, um, you know, the, the talent to work ratio. Um, Sorry, we have now unplugged the refrigerator. So because the perfection is we just got a, we just got a window into the into the, into the sonic, uh, you know, perfectionism. <laughs> because of all I like, unplugged the fridge so that it stopped buzzing. It's like sixty cycle. <laughs> all I do is so I'm like, what's that? No, that I'm going to unplug the fridge so we can podcast correctly. I think uh, we should be turning the podcast over to you for, <laughs> for editing and mixing it. Yeah, um, no, but, but we want to put 20, it on. 2030. <laughs> <laughs> um, Back when podcasts were legal. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But uh, so one of the things, I mean, the, the thing that I always loved about the Meadowlands and then, you know, subsequently discovering, I, I, that was my entry point, was the Meadowlands and then went, worked backwards through you guys' catalog. Um it uh, a pamphlet, I guess in this case. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, I love the Meadowlands thematically. I mean, I, I, and and you know, part of what we talk about a lot on this podcast because we are a decade apart, each of us. Jeremy yeah. being, you know, uh, just turning forty, uh, Christian gotcha. about to turn thirty, and me about to turn fifty. Right. Um, you know, we talk about. Uh, you know, sort and I as a writer too. That that album spoke to me more than any album. Um, you know, certainly in the last 15, 20 years. And, um, but that album was about aging and, and not getting what you wanted and the sort of disappointments in life that come with a creative pursuit, I think, um, and having that be kind of uh, rebuffed. What, would, what, is, what are some of the themes that you're approaching in this album? Because, you know, things have, have changed drastically for you. There's, you know... Um, then you were you were talking about not achieving rock stardom. Now you're talking, you know. I assume you're talking about real life, and uh, you know things have evolved for you. So what what's what are you what are we attacking on the new one? Uh, it's um, it's sort of the same in the like uh, I kind of thought of the metal lines more. I always think of it more. And again, it might be one of those habity, bullet-pointy sort of answers as being about time and how you spend it. So in my case, I had wasted an awful lot of time in music and being in the band, and it got me to a point where I was, you know, 
not making 13 grand or whatever the, you know what I mean? Like, which is what I was making at that time, teaching guitar. And uh, in that sense, it's it's still the same now. uh, In that this record's sort of about time. It's laid out a little more broadly, but my worry was with the metal ends, and with this one, was it's going to seem too much about like, oh, I can't finish my precious album. (laughs) And... I was hoping that it, to this extent that songs would connect with people that, you know, we all do those things. You know, we do go to grad school and start careers and marriages don't work out and careers do or don't or whatever. And either way, you got to put in the time and sometimes it doesn't pay off in exactly the way that you wanted. My particulars are band and music, which I'm very sick of <laughs> at this point. But that is still what this one's sort of about, with a couple other um, things in life factored in there, because things are different for me in 2017, or what, in 2010, that we're up to right now, (laughs) or, uh, as opposed to 2003, and four years before that. Yeah, and half the band left New Jersey since then. Yeah, I'm... That's crazy. Yeah, we're not even a... Yeah, we're barely a New Jersey band, if we ever were, you know. I mean, or haven't been in a long time. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, so, you know, part of the, uh, the, the so the story, you know, the, I'll um, sort of what ha- fill you in on what happened because, um, you know, I, I know you've been sitting at that table at Finelli waiting for this article to come out. Um, the, the Your week, usual, Mr. Bissell? Yeah. Yes, please. Has anyone shot up? Another Bloody Mary, sir? Yeah. <laughs> Is he here? Is he here? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, and you know, part that that album did inspired me. Uh, you know, a lot. It's not like I listened to the record and and you know, started you know burning my suits and and pursuing <laughs> the thing that I wanted to pursue. But it, it right. does, you know it did. Uh, you know, I love that record, and it was the soundtrack to a lot of of that uh, decade. Um, I went to I collected my notes. I typed them into my computer. I hit save, and um, a few days later. Uh, I had written a I had written a screenplay basically at night. I worked in um, uh, the government at the time, and um, I had been writing, tapping away at a screenplay which I'd never written. I'd always wanted to write. Um, right. Took me two and a half years to finish it, uh, probably in five sittings. And uh, <laughs> wow. um, but uh, I had my friend told me to enter it into the Nickel Fellowship. Uh, competition, which is the Academy Award screenwriting competition, right. and four days after I had lunch with you, yeah. I found out that I was a finalist out of sixty-eight hundred people. Right, and I thought, "Holy shit! Yeah, I'm going to be famous. Yeah, by Wednesday." <laughs> and um, I believe this is, you know, sort of uh, part and parcel with your opening for the fix um, <laughs> that was going to explode you onto the scene. So I. <laughs> Uh, I got calls and emails from about 80 different agents, producers, you know, everybody asking to see this script. Right. And then the follow-up question, which I wasn't prepared for, was, can you send me the rest of your work? Can you send me your portfolio? (laughs) To which I said, would you like the state of the state from Massachusetts in 2001? Because I was a speechwriter. And I had just tapped out one screenplay. So, um, you know, flash forward... And a couple of years, I was a, a lobbyist, um, you know, and, but I was making good money, and I hated it. I right. absolutely hated it. So I went in one day, and I quit. And I holed up in a library in Boston for the next nine months, 
That said, my poetry teacher from college created a show called Nurse Jackie on Showtime, oh, Liz wow. Brixius. And she said, I've always wanted to work with you. Um, you know, I always said if I got a hit show, I would hire you. And she said, send me your stuff. And so I sent her my one screenplay. Right. And she said, you need more stuff. And right. so I went and quit my job. I holed up in a library for nine months. I cranked out two features, uh, two uh, episode, two pilots, and, uh, and an episode of 30 Rock. And wow. I got hired on Nurse Jackie and worked there for a couple years, and that was the beginning of my writing career, which is the reason I didn't write the Paste article. <laughs> oh, awesome. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know about the holding up in the library. You said that you were writing for Nurse Jackie. You yeah. skip that middle. No, I skipped the part where I was a... a Production. A shitbag lobbyist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and it was under duress. I'm not that productive now, but I'm going to finish this goddamn article, and you are going to read it so I can rescue you from Finelli's. So, <laughs> Mr. Bissell, what have you been up to? Um, it's sort of like the photo negative of that story. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, it's, it's funny. Whenever someone asks, like, why it's taken so long, I always think that... <clears throat> Sort of like that story. There's, it's like, it's like why, why did it take so long to, to record the record, this record? But the other part of it is like, why did it take so long to get started recording? Like, you know, the record comes out in 2003, and technically, recording on this one didn't start until July, whatever it is, of 2010. And I was only realizing recently that, like, that's, when I, when I think about it, <clears throat> that's like half the answer. It's like... This is not an exercise in, in, in making you, you know, feel bad. I, 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 I it's a disagree. Day like any other for me. <laughs> no, I disagree. You, you, you know, since I saw you, since we, you know, um, went sharesies on a uh, on a hamburger and a milkshake with two straws, um, uh, we, you know, you met your wife, who was in a very cool band. Yes. And I mean, this is, these are all, you know, uh, these are all details that you're leaving out of the story that. And that is what the first, that, that like, the why, the other part of it, like, why it took so long to get to. Because, yeah, like, after the Meadowlands, that was sort of, like, for, like, so that's 2003, um, I got fired from my job that I had in 2004, really for doing band stuff. <laughs> it comes right down to it, although, I didn't even tell the other band geeks, actually, I was too embarrassed about what it. What was your job? I was working in an ad agency in the finance department. Oh. So, like, I quit teaching guitar right and started the, I took Kevin's old job as like an assistant, because all that, all that junk in that story, and that song that I can't type and all that kind of stuff, I, that was all true, but so he kind of slipped me in as a temp, because he was so great at it, and so he just said like, hey, my friend's going to do this, he'll be fine in the long run, right now he doesn't know how to turn a computer on, do you have anything, so he got me in, like his old job as like an admin assistant. I was that good as a lobbyist, by the way. Were you? <laughs> Yeah, it was a horrible. What are you? Oh, God, yeah. I would assume that you, I don't know, I figured... I just kept, I kept thinking, like, I wouldn't pay for this. I wouldn't pay for this. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a good way to go. Oh, yeah, it's not a great way to, to, Approach. to go through your, to, yeah, your you career to, you believing be, that you're a fraud. To sell it. <laughs> you have to be 100%, you know, yeah. like, walk in, like, you need me. Yeah. And I did never uh, achieve that. Oh, really? In my oh. own brain. So, um, but, so you, so you, you know, you... Uh, left work. These guys. So Kevin left the ad agency to to go into. Uh, was he's in pharma sales? Is that right? He's in. He is in pharmaceutical stuff now. He went. Uh, he had a couple other things in between, and <clears throat> basically he stepped up to a real job. I went in as the temp. 
stopped teaching guitar. It's so that's January of '99, but like right when we started recording that spring, we recorded like all the basic tracks to the metal lands, and um, I don't remember the chronology on. You know, Jerry's in like finance stuff, and Greg's also started as a temp for the same agency, and then ended up in also pharmaceuticals. And so they were somewhere en route. I don't quite remember. And that also played out during the four years it took uh, to do the record. So tracked it through that spring, and then I basically messed around with stuff for the next three and a half years, setting sort of a template that I seem to be unable to escape from, lo, these many years later. And then uh, record came out in just, uh, was it September of 2003? So that's 14 years ago? And it, I mean, it, it wasn't just that the album came out, it was that the gestation period for that album was, was protracted by business, by, you know, shitty business uh, issues and things, but it also came out to stellar reviews and, uh, you know, huge critical acclaim, I think, um, to the <coughs> point where, um, you know, that, that remains today, which is that every year for the past four years, I've uh, seen you on the most anticipated <laughs> album of the year uh, list, the, these <laughs> silly things that I read and that, uh, you know, uh, they're for my benefit. But, um, you know, that that album, had, you know, made a huge impact on, on people, I think. Um, that's, that's crazy and just super nice. And um, the, the other thing that sort of factors in there, though, is that the... Um, I don't remember when the Pitchfork review was. Probably not long after re- release. But because we were doing the album with our friend Corey, who, who had this way watch the kosher. Um, rather than doing it like, like I say with, because we really were doing it with him. Like more than like doing it for some label where we maybe didn't know everyone. Or, you know, it was just him and his house. And, and he'd done all these other great albums. And so it was a very, like he really stayed on top of that. Like all through that winter. It was a very protracted slow sort of evolving thing it wasn't like all at once because it wasn't really released and this is pre-iTunes like iTunes is what? summer of 2003 (laughs) how did you people listen to music? yeah so what we're talking about is CDs like we didn't even do vinyl like just CDs so it was like well I've ordered a thousand and we did a pre-release that had a couple extra bonus songs to raise money to ahead of time to be able to afford like a um, independent like press person, mm-hmm. publicist, <clears throat> which just seemed important to me. So, and in hindsight, I think it was <laughs> money well spent. But it was so that was really a protracted thing through that whole winter, like into the spring, maybe in the summer. Like, um, shows would get bet- bigger and better, and like he's like, I'm ordering another thousand copies, and then like I'm ordering another two thousand, and just it was crazy. Like that that seems. I still remember the feeling, like, they were just, like, because yeah, we sold, like, I think 700 of the first record and about 1,000 of the second, but that was with, like, a big push, like, in Tower Records, mm-hmm. and that was still <laughs> extant, and, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was super cool, but also very spread out over time, so that, which sort of goes to the part of the answer of, like, why it took so long, because, like, at that point, we were almost we would get together like in the all through that next year when we could and rehearse rearranging the songs so we could play them live because I'd done all like the basses and guitars and keys like what started as band tracking except for the song Happy 
and like the last song, which you could <laughs> I make the argument those are the two best songs on the record. Um, those are pretty much that's how they were put together in the band. So when you hear Happy on that record, part of the reason it worked so well is that all those micro decisions were made in in the basement. You're hearing Greg's guitar part, and you're hearing I think Kevin's tracked on bass. Uh, I'm pretty sure, and you're. You know, you're hearing all that. It doesn't change after the fact. I think I doubled one guitar. That's it. Um, as opposed to the other songs, like, we're cutting and pasting to a certain extent, when they weren't on computer, but... Um, and everything's sort of rewritten, things are changed, different guitars are formed. So, going to play that record live then, there was no pressure in the beginning, because, like, we were only going to play for our friends, family, or, you know, the 50 people. So as it got gradually bigger and bigger... We had to put more work in figure out a way to play these songs live because we were effectively like a cover band, you know, which is sort of like a running joke that we're they do some damn good covers. Band. I remember, yeah. so I I remember Jeremy, you know, was the one that that brought metal into my attention, and he worked with somebody who was a huge fan of Secaucus. He was living in Chicago at the time, and he saw you guys live. I think at a street festival or something. Oh, and yeah, I remember that one. And um, he was like, you have to check these guys out because it's, you know, it's palpable how much, how, like, overjoyed they are to have people showing up to see them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so the first time I saw you was at the Intonation Festival, which was the original Pitchfork Fest the first oh, year. Oh, yeah. And you guys got out there and you were like, holy shit, we've never seen an audience this big in our lives. <laughs> no, that still happened. Like, yeah. That was... I mean, it was like 20,000 people. Something like that. It was in the, yeah. It and was you were lot. like a four o'clock slot. Because yes. they loved you, um, and and you know they had been very effusive in their praise, and so you guys got a pretty good, and it was a pretty good spot. Um, but I remember, yeah. you know, understanding what Jeremy was saying because this is the other brother, right, um, right? That you know, Kevin was out there tossing his bass like as high as he could. He's like, I've never, you know, I've never been someplace without a ceiling. Yeah, you know? exactly. <laughs> uh, that's three feet over my head. Yeah. Um, exactly. You know, what was that like? I mean, what, it, had, did you understand at the time, like, the, the scope of things? I'm not saying you're, uh, you know, did you understand that, like, uh, I mean, was it, was the, am I reading it right that it was palpable that you guys were having so much fun because you'd, you'd never seen audiences that size? Oh, absolutely. Like, so all of it, like, I mean, ultimately, I think we sold, like, just about 40,000 albums, which is... Still, it now for different reasons seems bonkers, but even at that point where 40,000 was, you know, sort of a more modest indie success, I just couldn't believe it. Like, it's cr crazy. Um, and granted, playing that first Pitchfork one, it's not like those are all our people. Like, we played in that, hey, we're going to set up a play over here. 20,000 people move in, like, or whatever. Like, but to be part of all that, yeah, it was, it was crazy. Like, especially because even at that point, so, like, I think I think that's a full year later. I think that's 2005, but I'm not sure. It was. fuzzy. Okay. It was, Jer it was actually Jeremy's uh, version of a bachelor party. Oh, was, okay. I flew out to Chicago and we went to Intonation Festival. Okay. Um, getting back to our own story, then the following year, um, Jeremy was working for in marketing for Whole Foods. Okay. He set up the first sponsorship uh, of the Pitchfork Festival. Oh. So he... He brought Whole Foods into Pitchfork right. uh, to be a sponsor, to be their title sponsor, yeah. and we got backstage passes. So I said, "Do you mind if I invite my brother right. Christian right. to come?" And they had never met before, and so they actually met at Pitchfork. Fest, oh wow! Kind of cool. 
to the next year then. The following 2006 year, yeah. or whatever. Which is uh, tragically for me. Yeah, it sounds yeah. like I missed a, you missed a great missed show. A show, yeah. I don't um, remember musically how good it was or we were. Was I just remember being. I, I remember stepping, feeling like we're stepping up to the, like some sort of pros or something that we weren't necessarily ready for, but it was super cool and fun and quite yeah. a mind bend. Must have been energizing. Uh, yeah. I mean, it was terrifying at first. I only took one, you know, it's pre-cell phones and everything, so I had to have my camera to take a picture. I had one photo of the mic I was going to sing into, and then beyond that is like this, I mean, it's such a cliche rock photo, but it's just like this sea of heads. I was like, holy. We can play Where's Waldo later, and I can yeah. find myself in the crap. <laughs> yeah, probably. That's right. We'll pull that out. Um, but yeah. then, so then I remember, so I, and, and then subsequently saw you in, at Shuba's in Boston, a couple other things. Um, and, uh, you know, you were good, you were garnering, you were headlining reasonably good sized clubs after that. What, um, you know, but you were also given the circumstances, I think touring, uh, on vacations, probably during work vacations and nights and weekends. It's basically just weekends. Like I think that first South by Southwest, so that would have been spring 2004, I think. <coughs> uh, yeah, it must've been. So we were ostensibly going to tour down, but then Kevin couldn't even do it, so we had to like cancel a couple shows and on the way back. So I think we paid like two or three days, on, and that was our only tour for the Meadowlands. At the same time, we played like a weekend or two a month for like the next six years. <laughs> like so, there's both a perception that we never played or never toured. Like if you lived in Denver, where we played once, but if you lived in like Chicago, where we played dozens of times, it's just like. Really, you guys are trotting out that same set list in two thousand nine. Fascinating. Uh, I will, I will uh, in your defense, the, uh, the set list. I love the set list, but also you play some ripping covers, and I've seen you do "Your Love" by the Outfield, which <laughs> oh, made me love that song. Um, I always loved that song. I, I did. I always had too, but I had never. It really hadn't been brought to my attention. <laughs> um, that's and I can't remember some of the others, done. but you, I mean, you started out as a cover band in, in 1989, right? And, and so these are, this is a holdover from a, from a, uh, bygone era that you guys like to break <laughs> out these sort of mainstream well, covers. <laughs> so, I mean, we started out as an original band in 89, uh, with a different drummer and we played and rehearsed in New Jersey and played some shows and stuff and then, uh, went our separate ways with them and then. And even just whether we're going to continue to be a band. And then um, in South Jersey, uh, looked for some other drummers, found Jerry. And we were st- it was still really about like writing our songs and being an original band. That said, we got a job to be the band on the Cape May Ferry, which goes between Cape May, New Jersey, and Lewis, Delaware. So that's summer of 1990. Um, and that was, you know, they don't want originals, they want covers. We would still do one or two originals. But to... And then we got, um, through Jerry, we had connections at the Shire, which is like this um, bar, a very old bar in Cape May, and we would play like three sets a night. But our version of covers, so that's like 91 maybe. And then, I think also through Jerry, I would guess, because he was doing a lot of like the early, like trying to get shows and stuff, we ended up playing at um, places in Baltimore, because he was going to school down there. Where I went to college. Where'd you go I went to Johns Hopkins. Oh, okay. You went to Telson outside. Oh, cool. Of, yeah. yeah. So was 
What year was that? That would have been 90, 91, maybe 92. I get fuzzy. 92 at the latest, I think. So 91, and we played Fat Tuesday, which is like a chain of like slushy alcoholic drinks. I don't really quite remember. They were. But we were like a horrible cover band. That's like we say it and you, and yeah, we try out some covers every once in a while. We're usually just like the chorus to one cover. Like, I don't think we've ever done that song. We just do the first verse and then we let, let it fall to pieces and of the outfield song or whatever. But I think, like, I, saw we you play cover, I, think I saw you cover 38 special ones too, maybe. Well, someone did at one of those shows in Maxwell, someone did the, you know, the joke of Freebird, they requested Freebird. Uh, oh, someone it. actually... So we played it. Nice. <laughs> like, pretty far into it, too. Like, that's... Be careful what you wish. Yeah, I know, it can happen. Um, so what's the set list on the, uh, on the uh, Cape May Ferry? Set list on the Cape May Ferry, which is so, like... it's I, I don't know, I kind of feel like it's part and parcel of, like, being New Jersey or something. Like, you're so close to both. So close to New York. Yeah, right, but almost. <laughs> so close. Um, like, we were we were basically doing, like, 80s power pop stuff, but you're not far enough away from that chronologically that anyone, that there's any irony or, like, detachment or, like, or like you know, finding this sort of thing in, like, your uncle's record collections. Whatever. You know, it's 1991 or whatever, and we're doing a couple Smith songs, some Squeeze, uh, In Excess, like, stuff like that. Where we could, and then some sixty stuff too, like, uh, like I can't a Beatles song or Smokey Robinson. I can't remember mm-hmm. what what we were, I could think about it. Crowd pleasers, big crowd pleasers, not at all. Like we and we sounded terrible. And we had a crappy PA that we bought, and were you um, the Wrens at that point? No, we went through a million. When I joined the band, I joined the band. So the year before that, in '89, I joined because. Kevin and Greg had done some demos, calling themselves The Voice, if I remember right. God, it's weird. Uh, and as you uh, sort of um, mentioned, they sent tapes out and stuff, and got someone said, like, yeah, you can open up for The Fix. So that 80s band, who were, actually, you know, some of those songs are really awesome. But it's just weird to think that they were sort of on a comeback tour in 1989. Like, that's 34,000 years ago, and they were, like, on phase two of their... Right. You know, like... Uh, because when were their hits? 80 The polish of Standard Fall had kind of yeah. uh, dimmed. dimmed. Yeah, I guess so, by 89. So Save was, by zero, Standard Fall. Save by zero, one thing leads to another. So they were like, all right, this is great. Like, doors are opening... Um, and I knew, Kevin and I went to the same college, like I was finishing when he was starting, which is William Patterson in New Jersey, but, uh, but I'm like five or six years older than him, which you would think I would know after almost 30 years, <laughs> uh, I think it was five and a half, so, uh, I actually knew him because there were these parties that we would play in Ocean City with, um, friends of mine and they would have, like, I don't know, a hundred people in there. And there was sort of like a house band with a uh, friend Tom Breen on bass, who's like one of the best bass players still, as I remember to this day. Sometimes drummers, other guitar players, people that playing-wise at least had a huge influence on me. 
And Kevin was like, Kevin was friends with the with the younger sister of the guy I was friends with. So he was also at these things uh, later on, and he was playing his keyboard, and we knew each other from that. And then when he got the thing opening for the fix, he's like, hey, maybe we can get Charles to play guitar. So that's how they, yeah. So I was just the guitar for hire. Gunslinger. Nah. <laughs> Back when I could still sling. And, uh, and yeah, and that other drummer first, and then... Uh, so did that do we even play that the fix cancelled and it was one of those pay to play deals where we had to sell like 100 mm-hmm. tickets for like 20 bucks a pop or something which was ridiculous and was never going to happen and then we made a stink about it and they waived some of that because the fix cancelled we played the show anyway and it was god awful and there's you know this huge like North Jersey like <laughs> just uh, sort of cliched nightclub Basically empty that we're playing this. Called like Narcissus or something. <laughs> it was, uh, yeah. It was it. Uh, it's not connections. I'm blanking. It'll come back to me. Yeah, that was. I think that was like a, a lot of metal. Yeah. Fans would go, run through there. So, um, so then you, so you get. Go ahead. So we're, no, are the favorite venues of, of yours? I mean, uh, Narcissus and, and connections <laughs> side. Uh, are they, are they in Jersey? Is it is it a are, or do they move for that matter? Um, is it the uh, like fave ones total? Like I mean, like do they move physically like a fairy? Um, what are you, uh, <laughs> but like, what are your favorite places to play? Uh, after all this time, it's sort of varied. You know, like Maxwell's is always one of the favorites, but that came later. Like we didn't did we play there before the Meadowlands? I uh, I guess we did, but like we weren't. We were never really part of any sort of scene because, I don't know, we just sort of hold, even when we were living together and really focusing and all, like everyone like on full band, like let's put these songs together and record and all that kind of stuff. Um, and we had friends locally in other bands, but I don't know, we never really were part of a, any sort of scene in any of those towns that we lived in. Like certainly not part of Hoboken, um, which is sort of weird. Like, I feel like everyone else I know that's in a band in New Jersey is just like, yeah, I hang out with you and Latango all the time. Or like, I've never seen them on the street or met them. <laughs> no, there is that, that I mean, uh, that feeling in when you live in Jersey that you're almost somewhere. Like, yes. Yeah. It, like, I, you know, you, I used to, you know, read the bands that were coming into town in New York Magazine, in the back of right. New York Magazine, and just sort of visualize, you know, what these places look like and what it would happen, you know, what right. would happen. It's just a... But this is also something that we talk about all the time, which is that you don't, I mean, necessarily know or feel that you're in a moment in a moment, right? I mean, right. it's, it's uh, we recently read, you know, Meet Me in the Bathroom by, by Lizzie Goodman, and that's, um, uh, talk, I think, you know, one of the rare instances when, when you speak to people who do feel like there was a certain type of awareness because it was such a concentrated geography in the Lower yeah. East Side and there were such, you know, even contemporaries. But, I mean, despite the the rap that uh, a place like, you know, Brooklyn gets now or Williamsburg or Bushwick, yeah. um, it's, it, it doesn't necessarily feel like a completely sort of congealed, you know, um, uh, a scene. So, I mean, I wonder is that is that part of your experience in Hoboken that maybe, maybe we were part of it and unaware of it? Or? Uh, I don't know what the Hoboken scene looks like other than Yellow Tango, by the way. Yeah, and we never really lived in Hoboken. We lived close yeah. by, like Weehawken and a couple different, excuse me, a couple different places in Secaucus and then, you know, other places. And, um, I think, in hindsight, no. I think we weren't really part of a scene. 
but it's sort of getting, you know, maybe what you're saying too. Like, Maxwell certainly was like the epicenter of a certain scene, but they're also like a, an important tour stop for national bands. So, like, you know, when REM plays there or whatever in 1980, whatever, they aren't part of the Hoboken scene per se, although I'm, I'll bet they all went out to dinner or something. But, um, but what always comes to mind is like in all these years, the, the, the one time that really became clear that we were like in a moment or in a scene was we we became friends with and, and remain good friends with all the Saddle Creek folks like in the mid to late 90s. So a couple of them were on the same label. Commander Venus was Connor Bright Eyes yeah. band like on our same label of grass. <clears throat> and when we toured out there, that still remains one of my favorite places ever. There was this place called the Cod Factory. It was basically community run. And they were, it was so tight-knit and so clear. There were, everyone was in everyone else's band. Everyone was, like, interdating. Everyone was, like, all going to school or finishing up and all within the same, like, five-year age range. And, and then, they, you know, a couple years later, as we got to know them and stuff, it's, like, it's the faint and it's bright eyes and it's cursive and, uh, you know, just a, a, a bunch of other chili in the wall. Like, and it really was... A real scene in that they were, I mean, I hate that word, maybe, no, but, but they a, had one place yeah. to play, they found each other. It was a geographic it was, center. Yeah. And, yeah. There was a geographic center, and they certainly got to know bands playing through, like us, and, uh, but. It was really the first, it, curiously enough, that was, I mean, from, from my vantage point in Northern Virginia, that, that really was the first um, sort of time I was aware of. Uh, like a, a specific geography, a specific label, and right. uh, you know, like a collection and group of bands. I mean, I think um, it's sort of reminiscent of the way that like Elephant Six had that kind of like very tight knit yeah. um, sort of sense of community, I guess. Yeah. Um, but even more so because it was in Omaha, which seems sort of like an unlikely place. Well, yeah. Place some of the that, some the more isolated you yeah. are, I mean, you know, Minneapolis was a scene, Seattle yeah. was a scene. Um, you know, the the more isolated you are, the more dependent I guess you are on, uh, or the more community uh, dependent you are. So it's it's a, um, you know, I think that's what, what it grew out of. Yeah, I also ended up seeing Cursive paired on, like, uh, hardcore bills in D.C. <laughs> constantly, which always made for just, like, the weirdest yeah. crowd and the most, like, con- it was just nobody knew exactly, like, how to... Yeah. Like, well, they're on Saddle Creek, but they're kind of a punk band, you know? Yeah. Where did, where did we put these guys? Have you And you played with, uh, with a bunch of those Saddle Creek bands as well? Is that how you, that's how you got to know them or something? Uh, I think we were just booked on our on one of those or tours. Just out there. Yeah, we yeah. to play, and I'm sure uh, one of them in some, you know, like Norman Baylor or something. One of those early uh, incarnations of a mix of those same people, like that we played with them, um, and and then over time, like that just became like the place we'd look forward to, uh, almost more than any other. We got to know them. And then we, like, uh, did some other, like, little tours and stuff with them, like, like dated someone there for a year, like, just in, in there and just very involved in, uh, especially in those couple crucial years, like, 97 or something, 96, into, I guess maybe the 99, because then by that point we weren't playing anymore. You know, that's we were, yeah, that's once we started playing, uh, once we started working on Metal Land. So, mm-hmm. by 99, I literally wasn't <laughs> leaving the house after that. And you, when you were talking earlier about um, sort of the, the, 
I guess surprised in some respects. I mean, the, the feeling of, of, you know, selling 40,000 albums and, and sort of, uh, I mean, I, I guess, do you actually think about the impact that something like this is going to have on the audience? Because I'm always interested in the way that, uh, the way that, you know, in certain art forms, TV writing, Wyndham, or, or, you know, podcasting, like, you are necessarily thinking about your audience um, when you're actually in the, you know, going through the creative process. I mean, you that, are that, or aren't? You are, I yeah. think, in, in most cases. Um, that, that, that's, uh, that's, you know, part of the input is, is thinking about sort of what's going to appeal. And um, I wonder, I mean, obviously you want people to like it, but how much of that is actually driving you, you know, when you're in the writing process or, or um, you know, how much does that factor into it? I don't know. It's hard to... I mean, my... Uh, and I should say, does, did it change record to record since um, since uh, it, with this last record, given the, the success and, and acclaim that um, Netherlands had? I think, I think if if we'd done that sort of, if it'd been like a, if it'd been just a more traditional sort of thing, like two thousand five, we're still like a functioning band and go in the basement and write and record the songs and the albums out later that year, like two years later, sort of cycle. Yeah, I think then. Um, there probably would have been all kinds of uh, pop knobbing of <laughs> self doubt, like and just like second, triple, quadruple guessing every like little thing. You're like, this has to rock more, and probably would have been like way for the worse. Like um, now, I mean, now it's like it's so, it's so much later that sort of like it. It was bonkers to me at the time that it was like, oh my god, we're we're pressing another two thousand records. Now it's bonkers to me that I'm doing a podcast in my goddamn kitchen in 2017. <laughs> I mean, that's crazy for a record that came out 14 years ago that it doesn't, uh, you know, it's, it's not what's going on. or Like, it's yeah. not like... Well, we're, we're, we're doing this in anticipation of a, <laughs> a new release. <laughs> right. So, uh, again... Um, you know, this is the second time I've interviewed you on, uh, That's on, true. on, on you know, in <laughs> anticipation of this new release. Well, I've had so. Finelli's cater today, boys. Yeah. <laughs> um, but let's, uh, you know, what, can you talk about the new album at all or, or, or what, uh, you know, are you, are you liking, are you, you know, do you want to burn it down? Do you want to, <laughs> do you want to release it? Do you want to get it out of your basement? Yeah. All those, especially the burning part, but yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know, because you were, uh, we did a we did a uh, a listening party a couple, yeah. a couple weeks ago, and full it, disclosure, you very generously opened your your home um, studio to uh, a series I mean, of strangers. This, this <laughs> to, to take yeah to to go back to I mean when I originally got in touch with you, it was uh, I think I direct messaged the Wren's Twitter handle right um, and said, you know, can I, I like. I'd love to hear the new album and, and sort of didn't expect any kind of response and I'm pretty sure within about half an hour and it was also two days before Christmas um, and <laughs> within half an hour I had a response that said yeah come on over anytime we'll work something out um, that was actually a year and a half ago and I think we made it over here in, uh, about two weeks ago so that yes, was that true also, to our form yeah exactly yeah. true to form on both sides so um, but what we have had a chance to listen to it and, and um, but uh, I, I'd love to hear yeah I mean I'd love to sort of hear how the process is going and <laughs> well those how close to how close to well I won't, I won't actual I won't the F word the other F word <laughs> exactly <laughs> fucking completion yes <laughs> exactly Finny um, 
Well, those listening things, that must have been one of the, one of the first, because I, I say I've been doing it about a year and a half, and I've seen, I know it goes back to about like a year ago, holidays, New Year's, so maybe that was one of the first ones I threw out there, I don't remember. But it's about that. And I've done them off and on, more often lately, because, I mean, it, it sort of was like that bullet point old man story. I can't remember if I said in our listening to get together a couple weeks ago, but I mean, it started sort of, I started doing these more as like a, an art thing. Did I yeah, you know, it was curious, but that's an interesting... Uh, and that's sort of fallen by the wayside partially. Now I sort of do them to help me finish because I hear it differently. Please share the, the uh, as you explained it to us um, a couple of weeks ago, the idea, uh, or, I mean, well, your words, as we are or, As we are about to embark on live shows at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Oh, yeah, you were mentioned. Like, um, yeah. You know, so we are very haughty, um, very... <laughs> uh, um, very in the in the art scene in the art um, world. So yeah, I mean, actually, I really enjoyed. Who was that? What was the name of the artist that you were uh, referencing before? Uh, uh, Beth Campbell. Beth Campbell, and Who? she's British. She, no, she's, she's um, American. Yep. Okay. And her her work is. Liz, I mean, probably not far from you, actually. You can. I mean, just you know, sort of uh, spread the gospel. <laughs> well, she. Yeah, I'm always willing to spread the gospel. Beth Campbell's work. She's. Uh, it's. Um, it's sort of starting in general. Uh, uh, a like um, it, it's funny when you're talking about like scenes and stuff and I remember like I was I was dating this artist in 2000 2001 in Williamsburg kind of like right there in the heart of it all and so it was, it's interesting in hindsight to have been in and out of there all the time as part of the scene but the scene that I was part of didn't have, I was smack in the middle doing the Meadowlands I didn't see any music I mean I saw some bands and there was North Six. To me, it was all like artists because like I would go into galleries and stuff, mm. and so it's funny in that sense. You know, New York is always so layered, and uh, there's so many such a hierarchy of things. That, um, but through that person, uh, she uh, at the same gallery we went to this opening or went to this show by this artist I didn't know at the time named Beth Campbell, and. Um, Actually, I, well, I should say that from knowing those folks and from sort of being part of that scene for a while and then always being interested in it, it, it was always just always struck by the fact that you're, you know, that they're dealing with physical things in real space, you know, so in a, any sort of installation or piece, especially in a more traditional medium like painting or sculpture or something, there's always like one thing, one piece in the real world, and if that shows or sells or whatever, everything else is like a copy, like you're making photos of the thing that you were lucky enough to sell, and it's, it's a very weird dynamic. One value is based on scarcity. Value is based on, yeah, uh, yeah, on scarcity and, like, singularity. There's only one, or a limited edition of prints or that sort of thing. And in music, not only is it not that, but in fact, everything is a copy. Like, what I hand to the record label is a copy. Like, like I always think of Plato, <laughs> like the, remember that Plato pumper when you were a kid, just oh, yeah. like the end. I wasn't sure whether you were going I Plato in a T or. I was thinking yeah. this is kind of Neoplatonic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Are you familiar with the readings and teachings of Plato? <laughs> Plato. <laughs> nope. If I'm saying it with three kids, it's the gooey stuff that's blue that comes out shaped like a star. And you there are Lego with... pieces and puzzle pieces on the table. Yeah, in like the kitchen right now. Like a flip from the microphone and is... a ransom note to the tooth fairy. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Like not even a lie. <laughs> oh, and in fact, that's homemade Play-Doh in that bag. Nice. Yeah, yeah. it's the philosopher's <laughs> that's, 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 the, that's <laughs> yeah. the strong shit. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. 
homegrown mold itself. <laughs> Full toxic. <laughs> but but yeah, so like in music, it was sort of struck by the fact that like there is, it's all copies. Like send a file, like even aside from file sharing or even just like duplication or any of those sort of things, just like the original isn't even original. Like even that's a copy. That that what I sent off to the record label is a digital copy sort of assembled and then mastering makes it another copy and it's and sort of over time especially we're not really talking about it even though it's me day to day the governing thing about this record is just how unmotherfucking hard it has been <laughs> like to put it bluntly and that over time I was like well that effort's been put into making this thing which is a thing I come down and like mess around with and try to or get working or whatever every night like some old jalopy in the basement like that's the original everything else is sort of a nice copy you get as you're leaving the gift shop <laughs> like and that's tied to that is like what the record in some sense will be like it's like this memento that can memorize this, this idiotic pursuit across seven years until two or three in the morning you know so but pulling back a bit aside from that just just realizing that that in in one sense that that was what I was working on there was sort of like the original. I don't even necessarily mean the original copy. I mean the whole thing. like Because it all takes time. And time means that any time it took for me to Google those stupid sound panels and make my own was time that I didn't do a guitar part, which is time that has nudged it that much further into 2017. Like You become really desperate about every fucking moment and hour. And, and you weigh it against things you might have done. Like attention to your children and whatnot say I think the worst thing that anybody ever told me um, was that if you were thinking about the thing that you're working on in my case it's writing in your mm. case it's making music then you're working on it yeah <laughs> which is like oh yeah that's, I'm working yeah you know, I know, it's kind of like when I'm binge watching a show and I'm like, like you know this is work this is you know? research I'm yeah. googling and then yeah I'm not even because that does become a self-perpetuating sort of thing. You're like, yes, yeah, so I'm making good progress. Even all that aside, after seven years, you've logged in enough, definitely enough real work at some point. And so with that idea of like the, of like the, the original being, like essentially being that room, backtracking, but I'd walked into that show of Beth Campbell's around 2000 or something, and you, you walked into the room, into the, you know, the big lofty gallery space, which is over there on whatever. Um, and... Uh, sort of built into the into the space was a room and you walk in and there's like sheetrock and it's just you know held up by the those t-shaped support sort of thing and they build a room and you poke your head in the doorway and realize that it's um just a normal bedroom with a bed and a desk and a trash can and whatever and you sort of walk around in the gallery around the other side maybe even look into she had smaller stuff on the walls but then you realize that there's another room sort of built um diagonally opposite like a big rectangle cut in half into two rooms, but the doors are on opposing corners, if that makes sense. So you can't see both rooms mm-hmm. from the other one, or you can't see the other one. And you're like, oh, it's a, another bedroom, and you realize it's actually, like, wait a second, this is actually the same room. So then you double it, you, and this, sorry, double the same way, but then you double back and kind of look in the other room, and you're like, oh, yeah, it's, it's exactly the same. And you're like sort of bamboozled, and then you, uh, you mentally just go, oh, like, I'm going to, find, I'm going to catch her and find some imperfection. Yeah, some imperfection. So you choose something small, like the fold of the blanket on the bed, you know, just the ruffle in the in the pillow, and you go in the room and it is fucking there. Mm-hmm. Like, and then you 
you know, and even like the stuff in the trash can, like how the the crumpled up paper, it's the same shape, it's in the same position. And and then as you're running back to double check that, you realize that she's already anticipated all this and you have this weird sense that she's above the whole thing. You know, like like the wicked she's witch the master in the of uh, yeah. she's pulling the walking circles yeah. around her rectangle. And laughing. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I was just super it was a real mind bender. I was really impressed and not even impressed, it was just like any kind of good art, it just has it bypasses all the intellectual stuff and it just gives you a certain feeling, like all those things just sort of it just worked. Mm-hmm. And then I sort of kept um, over the years. I keep an eye on stuff that she's doing. She, you can go to her website. She has it. Um, I've been there in a while, but it's documented pretty well. Like I think I told you about that one. You can. I didn't see it in person. You can see it online. Yeah, you're looking at a room. It's a mirrored wall, like tables and chairs. But in fact, the the joke, the conceptual punchline, is that each of those what looks like mirrors are built out rooms off on these appropriate oblique angles to create the illusion that you're actually looking at this room, which is just... <laughs> it's just a mind better. Yeah, yeah, it's just so great. So, my over... I knew some people that knew her, like, through art stuff, and, and so I asked them, I was like, hey, do you think she would possibly be into the idea of working together? Because as I was thinking about that whole room as being what I was working on, because day-to-day, that's what it really seemed to... Um, it still does. I had this notion of like, uh, of just cutting the whole room out, kind of like a what's his name, drawn a blank, and putting that like in a gallery or something. Um, hey, you, come down. There's a cat. We have a, a, we have a cat with a lot of interest in the microphone. Yeah. <laughs> Which I does, yeah. And so the idea, um, and I, and I. Sort of put this on the back burner, but there was sort of a notion of, of copies and originals, and that was maybe the original. I had a bunch of smaller things that played into notions of originals and copies and stuff. But my thing to her, my my lobbying to her was like, would would you have any interest in like doing one of these rooms? Because I just thought it was conceptually hilarious that the very first copy of the record would actually be an analog copy in the real world of every. Every cable, you know, what she sort of does or can do. Mm-hmm. Every little guitar hook, stupid Ikea clock, all the sound panels, the shitty rug, the whole thing, cut and duplicated. So there's an age of file sharing and digital copies and stuff that the first copy would be in People could go, People could go into this room and listen to the original yeah. version of the Yeah, and the, the first copy was right there, but it was an analog copy made out of physical stuff. And But the, 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 to actually listen to it in that room or simply the, the room being the, the physical manifestation of, of the just incredible hours of labor and, and you know, thought. Well, sort of, sort of both, but, like, conceptually it's more just that it was, it is the original, so, like, all I wanted, to, like, fingers crossed you would show it and then some, someone, and obviously this plays out a certain way which we already talked about, but someone would just want to buy it, which was sort of the initial, like, hey, isn't that interesting how uh, visual artworks versus music. That was sort of the original impetus. Was like, if you lose the original, like lose it in that you show it or sell it or something, you're left with copies. So that really all I wanted them to take the hard drives, every song, which is hundreds of gigs of versions that will never see the light of day, and I'm done with it. It's sold. I will get a CD copy like everyone else, and I'm out. <laughs> like, it's so Wu-Tang. yeah, Corollary. and then that happened. Like. Which also then plays out its own way with, with uh, Skrelly. Yeah, that it sold to him, 
so they came out, which is conceptually slightly different in that it's um, it's an album of which they only made one copy, and they sold that. They still have the technically the original, which I think we talked about it, but like you know, in sort of like a indie rock sense, that's like the same fucking thing. And in our world, those are the kind of hairs you split and you make careers out of. But yeah. it, you know, in 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 a pitchfork sort of article, you can kind of see. Not even the pitchfork would necessarily frame it that way, but anyone reading it understands. You're like, uh, didn't Wu Tang just do that? So, that sort of put a damper on that. I don't really know what'll happen with with it as far as an art thing, since I'm still working finishing the record. But that was the original impetus yep. behind people coming over. I was like, yeah, come on by, see the original. This is like, the original. Yeah, like, no, that's there's a painting some... in the room, and you can come and see the original. You can. By the postcard on the way out in a couple months. So the same 40,000 people that bought the Meadowlands are going to be lining up down the block here in Brooklyn to listen to this album one at a time. That'll be the next 17 years of project. Popular among your neighbors, I think, for that. Yeah, exactly. That would be be interesting. And tell us a little bit about the, I mean, the inspiration from, I mean, so the the in-punk studio here is is obviously also doubles as your, uh, well, as your a library, um, if, uh, your, your library, and, and there you you talked a little bit about uh, Homer and the Odyssey, and um, right. there is something Homeric about the the journey to uh, <laughs> uh, to finality. But I think uh, I, you know I'd be curious to hear about some of the other artistic influences as you've been uh, that the that the original um, tracks were laid down for Christ. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, in nature, the original tracks were uh, were on uh, Ionic. Columns, yeah, which, <laughs> real, stone, yeah really. which is a real drag to transfer over into Logic, which is really <laughs> slow. Um, the backup. Uh, well, yeah, you, but part, it's it's funny the um, when you work on something for like this long, uh, it isn't just straight work in that you're like oh, it, um, even as open ended as this was, since it wasn't like a. Like if you're like a regular band recording with a band, maybe change some stuff and mix it and you're done. And that's essentially the Meadowlands. Like protracted across four years, I changed a lot, but it's still basically the the same framework of the original songs and all that. Whereas this is so open ended, um, because my finished songs are originally. If you went back through all the demos, all the versions rather, you come to the original demo, which sometimes is just a really bad drum loop and me on acoustic guitar, but it's still the same take or whatever. It's not it's no longer the same version, but it's somewhere under there. It's the same one, cut and pasted. So when you're when it's that loose and and not straightforward, what you prioritize over seven years just by default, like changes. So for a while it was the art thing, and then and then post Wu Tang it became less so. <laughs> and for a while it was the notion that this record was going to be a sequel to the Meadowlands. Hence, like that first song sort of mimics the starting. Mm-hmm. Sounds and there's some other the seagulls, yeah. The seagulls are sort of mimicking the spoiler crickets. alert. Yeah, there's some <laughs> seagulls because we're all from South Jersey, so that seemed actually more fitting or whatever. And uh, and so a few years ago, when I was doing the lyrics, I sort of wasn't really sure what I was going to write about. And I can't remember if we talked about it or not, but like right when we were finishing the Meadowlands, like right before the last mastering session, of which there were many. Like, my mom died, and then a month later, Jerry and Greg's dad died, and a month after that... Oh, I'm sorry, uh, Kevin and Greg's dad died, and a month after that, more or less, uh, Jerry's dad died, which is just, you know, very 
unlikely <laughs> mathematically. Um, and so there was a there's a feeling for a while that like oh, you know when we thought we'd start like like again as like a more of a band thing and doing it uh, more or less right away in two thousand five say or even two thousand six there would be about that because it was like a you know it's those things are it's a big epic. deal yeah. And what happened, though, is that, like, we just started recording in 2010 for a bunch of reasons, and by the time I'm getting to lyrics, it was 2013. So at that point, uh, it's 10 years since the Meadowlands, it's 10 years since my mom died. It's, in the way that those things go, it's not like a, you know, a governing... It's not immediate. Yeah, it's not a day-to-day thing, and it didn't... Um, so I started writing that sort of as, as, as default, because that was our original plan. It just gave me something to write about to get melodies together and get songs up and running and part of that uh, is still there you know like a couple songs of Kevin's clearly are about that a couple of mine have more of that in there than others but by the time I was really doing it no longer yeah it no longer felt like you know, it just is it's like a, it's just part of you know who you are and what your deal is and whatever it wasn't like a new thing and it didn't feel I don't know, it didn't feel like right or sincere, because you, or something, because you can gain a certain amount of mileage from pitching a, some sort of work around that sort of thing. Lost. You know? Yeah. And it's, it is important, and it's universal, and it transcends a lot of things, and it's, but at the same time, I wasn't really feeling that 10 years on. It doesn't possess you in quite the same way that it does, yeah. Yeah, right. so it's like, like, you just... You know, when that sort of thing happens, you're just like, I can't believe this is actually happening, even though mathematically we know, all of us know that all these things are going to happen to all of us. And yet, when it's driven home like that, you're just so, like, bamboozled. You're like, you know, it's inescapable. And later on, it's just like, well, I'm just another person, and this is what's going on. Yeah. Um, So, I was, so that is, so the art thing was one part, and then sort of our parents were another, and it was about that time that I was in a, a bookstore over in Prospect Heights at Unnameable Books. And um, I am sort of a gigantic poetry geek. Uh, and, like, if there's, if there's a used bookstore and a used record store, I probably won't be leaving with, you know, on the street, I won't be leaving with CDs or albums. Like, it's always, I don't know why, you know, maybe I'm just fried or something. But, it, like, a used bookstore is just, like, the greatest thing ever. Yeah. yeah, it is. And if you're into that sort of thing, man... No, no, I can lose a day and... Oh, yeah. Easily. And the one in Prospect Heights is really good, really good poetry section, which is sort of, you know, half those books are poetry, so... And I was... I was thumbing through... I was, like... I was thumbing through and was looking at The Odyssey or whatever, which I've read, uh, you know, a long time ago, and... And I sort of, I think I was crunching these same sort of numbers at that point. It was 10 years since the Meadowlands and, uh, and since my mama died. And, and there were some other things that sort of fit into the same uh, uh, numeric way that the, you know, that the Odyssey's put together, where he's standing on the island for seven years, seven of those 10 years after the, um, after the Trojan War. It was 10 years before the Meadowlands. It was 93. Well, that's when we were signing our first... We were doing our first record. So there was like a 10-year gap that seemed like sort of like the battle of the bands. <laughs> and then there was this other 10-year gap where I was sort of stranded 
doing I don't know what, but I couldn't seem to finish and get home, metaphorically. And, uh, and I was like, oh, man, I don't know, framing a record on the Odyssey? <laughs> Hasn't this been done once? <laughs> like by Wu-Tang. Yeah, by Wu-Tang. Undoubtedly, they'll have something out within the year. Uh, and, and I probably told this story, but I, it is actually true that I... You know, I was in there with our four-year-old at that point was only one, not even, and he had this thing where his, uh, which is super common with infants in their first year, where they, their tear ducts, tear ducts, like get clogged and dry up and stuff. So when he would wake up each time, you'd have to have these wipes and these like medically wipes and basically reopen his eye. So you can sort of see where it's going if I didn't already spoil my own lame ass story. But I basically looked down at him. He's woken up with one eye, you know, like, because he's just like this, which is a really great story on a podcast. But, uh, envision me being my own one year old with one eye dry chat. Yeah. So, so yes, he was, I think I even referenced that in one of the songs. Uh, and that was like, okay, I'm taking that as a sign, as any good Odysseus would have done. Here we go. And so that became a thing, and I killed myself trying to structure this thing that way. And then again, time sort of goes by, and you, you, you back off a bit. You know what I mean? Like, so that's in there a lot, in a way, but it's sort of all pushed. It really is sort of scaffolding, almost. It's pushed to the back, um, and the song should still sort of work. The record should still sort of work um, in the same way that Oh Brother Where Art Thou, which I saw and never even realized, it didn't even occur to me that that's Hung on the Odyssey also. I had the exact works. same experience with that movie. Really? Yeah, I, I did, I mean, I just, and then it was, you know, subsequent to that, actually shown to us, I mean, uh, in school repeatedly as a way, yeah. you know, of, of sort of teaching you, um, and what we were talking about yesterday is, you know, the, the way that, as a, an educational tool, um, but, yeah, no, it, I mean, it didn't, it just sort of, it's just great, Storytelling, and there's yeah. a reason for that. Yeah. <laughs> now it's a, it's a classic. Yeah, exactly. And that's... Um, which sort of gets back to these listening things. Like, as much work as I put in on the words and stuff, sometimes for the worse, um, it's been super interesting, because, like, just a reminder that, that I want the record to still work. It's just a rock record. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like, And so when people are here to hear the record, they're not following along with... Libretto, <laughs> there's no, there's no lead sheet. Said, yeah. yeah, exactly. So it's a normal poem. <laughs> no, but it, it 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 sounds it sounds very good. I it, I can't imagine, given that I don't have the sort of uh, you know depth of music talent, I can't imagine how excruciating it must be to edit all the time. You know, what well, sort of writing and editing and uh, it is. It's like anything else. Sometimes you do... It is excruciating. And then every once in a while you hit like a patch where suddenly things that end up as keepers are like bam, bam, bam. And I, maybe that's what you're saying like in five sessions across... Completely. Yeah. Across two, two and a half years. I... And when that happens, you... I mean, it's hard to explain to people, but when that happens, like you... Sh after you wrap up that particular session, you are a hazard to yourself. Yeah. Because you've gotten so deep in your own head yeah. that you can't cross the street safely. Yeah. It's like you're, you've been in this like weird state of actually being awake, but not really like being so, you know, yeah. taken. Like you, you have no idea where, what your surroundings are while, during that burst of... Uh, um, it, 
Yeah. Do you? But do you ever run into the other part, which is when? See, I get that, but I also get like when when that's gone, when those little periods go where it's super productive and, um, and there's little doubt. I'm, <laughs> I'm a man, hobbled by doubt, but in those those rare things when, it there's like no doubt that it's good, mm-hmm. and that Player, yeah. every one of those yeah. is keepers. That's like that's the way the song will go. That solved it, and I walk around the remainder of the day relieved of the burden of working on it so in some ways I end up more I mean it's just me but I end up like more like I'm in a better mood like um, oh you're satisfied yeah as opposed to when when it's just the incremental like butting your head against yeah. the wall that's when I find myself still just like well it is the, the, base the r- ratio thing. of work versus talent you yeah. know what I mean and, and <laughs> I, when I get out of one of those I'll go back and read my own stuff and not remember that I wrote that right and that's a weird feeling that is like that wasn't me that was that character doing that you know it's that still happens even on these listening things because also because I'm changing these songs so much this last the better part of the year um, that I sort of have like it's like I get stuck so when this this one song comes on in my head the version I'm picturing is already like five versions ago mm-hmm. so I'm almost as surprised as everyone when this next part comes in and in that sense I hear it differently in front of people I'm like oh geez I totally forgot about this uh usually in a good way but ultimately good because it clarifies and I'm just like oh yeah that part should definitely not be in there what the what but there, there is also an evacuation like once once something's done yeah. you don't dwell on it it's yeah. like it's gone it's and that, that you know I always you know heard people say that particular musicians say that like uh, once the album's done I don't it's out the door it's yours you oh know, yeah I feel that very much too it's, yeah I've listen to the Meadowlands a couple times lately, just sonically to get my bearings as I'm finishing up. Both. But before that Not I for only, ten years? I heard it twice since two thousand three, maybe. I mean I've only heard Sakakas twice since over once. Really? Because wow. I don't need to hear them. No. Like I know them. <laughs> yeah. I don't need to, Daddy. I lived it. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I don't uh Yeah. It's like looking at High school pictures of yourself or something, you know? Not even high school. <laughs> 40, myself at 40. Yeah, <laughs> well, it, it's, it's a weird, it's a weird sensation yeah. just to shove it out the door. But I am pleasantly surprised when I hear it, for the most part. Yeah, you know? me too. I think it's, you know, it sounds great to me. <laughs> Should we wrap it up? I think so. Thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time. This is incredible. I mean, I, we're, is, the, uh, the new album, which we tentatively um, sort of anticipated for 2018, um, we should. Yeah. We just want to get this on the record so we can hold it over you later. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna turn uh, in no. my uh, my think piece on the rents by then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, it will be 2018. Excellent. That's a promise. Yeah, it is. Well, <laughs> just because I really am wrapping up, and so even if I get, even if it takes me a couple more weeks, which isn't impossible. Rather, it wasn't, but whatever. It would still, even with some time, downtime, and some, and lead time for like labely stuff, it would still be late spring or something. All right. Well, I'll work on getting you guys a bootleg before then. Anyway, <laughs> thanks very much to Charles Bissell. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you. All right. Great. I'm Wyndham Lewis. On behalf of my brothers Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis, thank you very much for listening to the Brother 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 podcast. Many thanks also to our heroic producer Damian Kendall and to Simon Doom for our epic intro music. 
Learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.